I have uh, been anticipating today for a long time. I'm ready to preach this message. Typically, that means it's a long message, so settle in. Um, but uh, I am just happy to uh, share what I believe God has spoke to us this morning because we're in a unique uh, we're in a unique season. Okay, so for those of you that are new or recent with us, um, we've been meeting in this space right here for a year, Pastor Ian. Uh, probably mentioned that to you, that we've been at the middle school now for one year, and uh, we're looking to be here um, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe six to 18 months more. Is that fair? We'll just give that, we'll give that range, right? Sometime in 2023 uh, that, we'll, that we'll be uh, transitioning into a building. Um, and uh, we're excited about that. That's kind of the season that we're in, hence Ezra Nehemiah, because they're rebuilding. But I believe, I believe, and especially after uh, coming, coming home from Rhode Island yesterday, me and Kristen, my wife and I, and then Ian and Bree got a chance to spend some time with a bunch of other pastors um, this weekend. And one of the things that I'm hearing um, about the church across the country is this, that every church is rebuilding. Every church is in a season right now of rebuilding, of putting things back together. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this name. I'm going to name drop this morning uh, to show you that I'm a little cool. Um, uh, but there's a, there's a Christian author, um, mainly for women. Her name is Margaret Feinberg. And she was at this conference, this retreat that we were at for the last couple of days. And I was meeting, I was talking with her and her husband yesterday, um, which I had that open mouth insert foot moment because I didn't know that Mar I, this was Kristen and I's 11th retreat. Margaret's been at like nine of those and I didn't know she was married. But I noticed that she was hanging out with this guy all weekend and I'm like, oh, they must be together. And so I went to said guy Friday night and was like, hey, are you and Margaret, Margaret together? And he's like, yeah, we've been married 19 years. After I'd said congratulations, because I thought this must have been a COVID relationship or something like that. Nope. <laughs> anyway, um, so I was talking with them yesterday, her and her husband of 19 months, I mean years, um, and, uh, and, and she said to me, because she's doing a new research for a new book that she's writing, and she said, what is one adjective that you would describe, that you would use to describe your heart in ministry right now? And I first thought to myself, my first thought that crossed my mind is, what's an adjective again? <laughs> and then, and then I thought, okay, just go with any word. Like, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Because I know a noun, person, place, or thing. Adjective's a descriptive word, right? Yes! Okay, good. All right, awesome. I looked that up on Google. Anyway, um, but, uh, uh, and, and I just, without, without really thinking about it any further than, than deciding what an adjective was, I, I thought to myself, renewed. I am renewed about what God is doing in His church. And I don't know about you, 
But I am excited about what God is doing in this church. Because as we look in the book of Ezra, and you may not be this morning, but my prayer is that by the time we're done looking at Ezra chapter 1 and 2, that you are renewed with excitement about what God is doing in his church. Because this whole book, these two books that were in old history kind of lumped together, Ezra and Nehemiah, you can't really preach one without preaching the other because they go hand in hand so well. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about these books verse by verse. Um, For the most part, there's some lists in here that we're going to kind of skim over, hence Ezra chapter 2 this morning. Don't panic that much. We're not going to cover two chapters in super detail. Ezra chapter 2 is a long list of people that showed up to do the work, that showed up to be renewed, that showed up to rebuild the church. And and, uh, but, but, but my prayer is that as we look at this this morning, that you're renewed with excitement about what God's doing in his church. Because here's what I know. We all have bad days. Amen? Anybody had a bad day this week? I drove through Massachusetts twice this past week. <laughs> Woo! It's a good thing Kristen napped through Massachusetts yesterday. Because God and I had some conversations. Ezra is all about a story of a renewed people that had been benched, exiled for 70 years. They were sent out of a land, a promised land that they were to be in because there were consequences for their actions. And they were sent out not just for a season, but think about this, for 70 years. For us, that's most of our life if not all of our life. You think about a lifetime of exile. And and the whole point of the message today is this. I I want you to, if you're taking notes, write this down. That God is a God who keeps his promises. Look at your neighbor and say, God keeps his promises. But here's the rub, and here's the thing that we wish that, that we wish we could kind of keep out of the narrative this morning. That God is a God that keeps his promises in his timing. Well, that's dumb. Right? I mean, my I mean, there are conversations with God that I have on the regular where I'm like, God, you could speed this up. Or God, you could slow this down. Or God, have you seen what's happening lately? Because you might want to tune in. I don't know if you, and and God's just like, wait, dum-dum, because that's what God calls me, as dum-dum. Just wait, because I'm doing things in my timing. Have you, uh, parents, let me talk to you for a second. Let me ask you a question. Parents, have you ever, have you ever put your kid in timeout? Let's not, let the, uh, let's not let the biggest moans and groans be after the question of, have you ever put your kids in timeout? Because there were some parents that had some feelings right in this area right here. Mm-hmm, yeah, they're going right now. <laughs> what I've noticed is that when I put my kids in timeout and I, and I go um, into the room afterwards to kind of talk about the situation, and I ask the question, are you ready to talk about this now? What's their response? Yes! Why? Because that, mean time, that means time out is over. I have never gone to one of my kids and say, are you ready to discuss this? Are you ready to go back to playing? Are you? And they're like, nope, I need a little more time out. 
right? Never happens, right? I need a little more time out. Now, some of you introverts are like, yes, that would be me now. I would place myself in time out for the week if I could, right? And, uh, but, but that's not, that's not the question I was asking. I was asking with your relationships with your children, right? And, and, and you go into and, and, and ask if they're ready to talk about it. Yes, you mean that time out is over? I'm all in. Let's talk about anything that we need to talk about. Yes, daddy. You're so right, daddy. I should not have done that, daddy. How many sorries do I have to say? How long do I have to hug my sister? All, all these different things, right? Okay, I'm in. I've got it. And then time out's over, right? These people were in exile for 70 years, and they had no idea how long it was going to be. They just had the hope that God promised that he was going to bring them out of it in his time. And so they had to trust him. They had to trust him. They had to trust him. So, as we talk about this, as we begin this new sermon series through, the, uh, through Ezra and Nehemiah, and as we witness the way that God kept his promises and worked in their lives, I hope, my prayer again, is that we will be assured that God will continue to keep his promises and continue to work in our lives today. So as we begin this book, I want to kind of give you a little bit of historical context, okay? How many of you love history? Okay? How many of you think history is the most boring thing on the planet? Amen. Thank you for your honesty. Um, that's, that's where I used to be. And let me just tell you, if you're in school, let me just give you a, a word of advice that I wish I would have realized 20 or 25, 30 years ago. Learn the history once. Like, tune in. Clue in. Because the thing about history that's different than any other subject, it never changes. So once you learn... You got it. It never changes. They keep adding details, but the general, the general history and, and, and all of that, it never changes, okay? So for some of you, this, you're going to tune out for the next five minutes. That's okay. For some of you, you're going to really geek out over the history that I'm about to give you uh, leading up to um, uh, the book of Ezra. 2000 BC. So this is 2000 years before Christ, before Jesus. God moved Abraham to Canaan, okay? So I'm basically bringing you up to speed on the whole Old Testament to where we are right here in Ezra. 1500 BC, 500 years later, God freed the Jews from Egyptian captivity. When, when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go, let them go, let them go. Yeah, 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 right? You learned that in VBS, Vacation Bible School, a few years ago. Stop shaking your head, okay? All right, that's 1500 BC, 500 years after God moved Abraham to Canaan. Then 1000 BC, another 500 years later, 1000 years, David was the second king of Israel, and Israel's best days were under the reigns of David and his son Solomon. Then we get to 930 BC, 70 years later, and the kingdom divided. The kingdom of Israel divided. You had, um, uh, you, you had the northern Israel and the southern Judah kingdoms. Not much has changed, right? We got the north and the south. Y'all didn't get that. Okay. Or you did and it just wasn't funny. All right. Um, and then 724 BC, 200 years later, the northern kingdom, Israel, was taken into Assyrian captivity. That's hugely important. Don't forget that. The kingdom, the northern kingdom, Israel, was taken into captivity. And for 150 years, Judah withstood by God's kind hand the assaults, that those would, uh, uh, the assaults of those that would bring them down. 
in captivity. But finally, Judah, the southern kingdom, had disobeyed the Lord, hardened their hearts, and given way to the idolatrous ways of their neighbors. Basically, the southern kingdom had given up on God. And they had bought into, they had bought into money, they had bought into power, they had bought into all of these different things that distracted them from the lordship of who God was. Can't believe they would do that. We don't do that today, do we? And so then 605 BC, 119 years later, about 1400 years from the time that we began, Nebuchadnezzar, everybody remember him? King Neb? Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took away about 10,000 of the brightest and sharpest of Judah, and and a guy by the name of Daniel, Daniel, was in this number of 10,000. And Judah stood against Babylon, so that King Nebuchadnezzar assaulted them until the city of Jerusalem was held hostage, and death filled the streets. Anybody that says the Old Testament is boring obviously hasn't read it. It's like a reality TV show that gone bad, like death and filling the streets and, and all, all of these different things. Nineveh, if you ever read about Nineveh in the book of Jonah, whoo cuckoo. And then 586 BC, the southern kingdom was taken into Babylon captivity. So, uh, and, and, and so then King Nebuchadnezzar, all right, we're getting to the end. So all of you that have tuned out, non-history people can tune back in here in just a second. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. This is huge. Okay? Destroyed Jerusalem, burning everything that could be burned. Tearing down walls and buildings. And the temple where God, where the Ark of the Covenant was housed, where the high priest would go in and meet with God, the temple was destroyed. And the Jews had long held to the temple as though it were a lucky charm in their midst. And while the temple existed, they thought no one could conquer them. And their trust in the temple, in a superstitious way, the Lord was far from their eyes. Why? Because their hope was in the building, the temple, the physical structure, and not in the God of the temple. The... Got it? And so during the reign of his grandson, of King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, excuse me, Babylon the Great fell to the Persians under the leadership of a guy by the name of Cyrus in 539 BC. So that name Cyrus brings us into Ezra, because then in 538 BC, one year later, King Cyrus's first year, Cyrus's heart was stirred by the Lord to send the Jews back to Jerusalem. And so this 70-year exile under the Babylonian captivity ended, and the promise of God that they would return and rebuild what had been destroyed began to unfold. And so while they were exiled for 70 years, the place that they lived, the place that they housed, the place that God promised that they would be, had been destroyed. And now the Lord comes to Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1 and says, hey, it's time. Let's go rebuild. So let's read Ezra chapter 1 together. Sound good? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Um, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. We're going to get to that in just a minute. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. 
What was the proclamation? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Verse 3. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, in whatever place he dwells, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, don't get distracted here. And one of the things I love about the Old Testament, one of the reasons that the Old Testament is so long, is that they give very much intricate detail. Okay, they give a lot of detail and I find joy in that detail because it reminds me that God is in the details of my life. But don't get distracted by the detail. The, 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 the main point here that I want you to grasp is that God has come to King Cyrus after 70 years of exile for the Israelites and said, hey, it's time. Gather the troops Get the church back together because we're going home. We're going home. The house is ready to re be rebuilt. God has come to me and said, the time is now. And so any of the survivors that are left, grab them. Get everybody and bring them because we're going to rebuild the house. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? All right, let's keep reading. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and all who were about them added them, uh, excuse me, added them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, okay, the treasurer, who counted them out, Shezbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400, and these did Shezbazar bring up, the treasurer, don't forget that, when the exiles were brought up from, the, uh, from Babylonia to Jerusalem. What does that last section tell us? That's how they paid for it. Okay, they were bringing their resources together. Not only the people, but they were bringing the gold, the silver, we're going to see in chapter 2, all the animals that they had, everything that they could use as a resource to rebuild what God was calling them to go and rebuild, they brought to the table. They brought to the table. And I love the model of that, right? That they brought what they had, they brought what was accessible to them, to the table for the purpose of rebuilding. Now, in the book of Ezra, we see three phases. And the first phase, found in the first six chapters of Ezra, chronicles the rebuilding of the temple under the leadership of one of the fav my favorite names in the Old Testament, Z uh, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Say, say it. And this is so fun. 
Zerubbabel. Okay, anyway, the governor and Joshua the high priest and Haggai and Zechariah the prophet starting in 538 B.C. again and was completed in 516 B.C. Now I want you to catch that. It took them 22 years to rebuild. 22 years to rebuild. What if we were in this middle school for 22 years? Okay, keep going, keep going. No, I'm just kidding. It's not going to take 22 years. Okay, and then we see the second phase and, 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 all, and all, of those, all of those different things. But today we begin looking at the rebuilding of the temple for the first step in reestablishing the people of God was to rebuild their spiritual lives and to reestablish the centrality of worship. See, places matter, don't they? Places matter. Places matter. Because, because in your house, you have a place for things, don't you? I mean, you even have the drop it place. Come on now, be honest. You might take all of the drop it place and hide it when people come over, but you've got the drop it place. You've got the place you kick your shoes off. You've got the place that you like to sit, your seat, right? My kids will get bold sometimes and ask, Daddy, can I sit in your seat? No, okay. Right? But, but you have that place for things. It is important. Hear me now. It is important to have a place where you worship God. It is important where you have a place that you come into. And the thing that you do is be expectant for the Lord to move in that place. But pastor, God is not limited to a place. I agree. I agree. God can speak in Hannaford. God can speak anywhere. I agree. But, there, but when we have a place that we look forward to going into and expectantly hearing God speak and move in, there's a greater expectancy. And so places matter. And so don't, don't be the person. Because I agree with you, and semantics matter, but don't be the person. Right? That says it's not about a building. Because all through the Old Testament, which is pretty important, we see the Israelites moving from place to place. We see the church moving from place to place. The book of Acts, Paul's missionary journeys, he goes on three of them. He goes from place to place, from church to church, from house to house, because that's the place that they designated to worship God in for that time. Y'all all right if I preach this morning? Because I'm pretty excited and out of breath. And so let's not devalue the house of God by saying we put too much stock in the, in, in the place. We put too much stock in the place. No, the place matters. The place matters. Because for 70 years, these people were exiled from the place that they worshiped God. Can you imagine their excitement and anticipation to bring all of their resources together and say, we're going to rebuild the place so that we can come and gather and worship to the Lord again in the temple, to where we can come and get direction from the Lord again in the temple. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? I agree. It's not about the church. It's not about the place. 
But like when you get home and you kick your shoes off, you can kick your shoes off anywhere. But doesn't it just feel good to kick your shoes off right in that place where you always kick them off? Doesn't it feel good? Because you're home. And you drop your bag where you always drop your bag. And it might even annoy everybody that lives with you that you drop your bag right there. And that may be all the more reason that you do it. And we should talk about provoking anger in the people around you. But that's a separate sermon. You get where I'm at? The place matters. That wasn't even in my notes. That was free. Um, where are we at? Okay. All right, we're going we're gonna to skip down. Y'all cool with that? We're going to skip down. We're going to skip down. There's three important texts that you ought to get. You ought, now, I just want you to write these down because we're not going to dive into them um, at length. My water is right there in front of you, honey. Can you grab it for me? I just need... Whew, I got to start. I got to start exercising. Again, Kristen told me I should start exercising. Again, she told me I should do some lunges, and I thought that'd be a big step. Did you get it? Some of y'all are explaining it to the person next to you. That's my favorite part. (laughs) All right. So three texts that if, you're, that if you're that person and you want to go do some study, I, I encourage you to go check this out because it'll, it'll, it will kind of make sense, the exile and the 70 years and all of those different things. It, it'll bring it together a little bit for you, okay? And the, these were going to be on the screen, but we don't, we just, we're just going to keep going, okay? Jeremiah 25, 8 through 14, okay? If you're taking notes again, write that down. Jeremiah 25, 8 through 14. Here's what happens in Jeremiah 25, 8 through 14. This was given to Jeremiah before these folks were exiled out of Jerusalem. Okay? And Jeremiah 25, 8 through 14, there is some strong language towards these Israelites. Why? Because they had sinned. Because they had sinned. And because the whole Old Testament, the whole theme of the Old Testament, if you've been here for more than five minutes, you've heard me say this, blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. How many of us know and remember that there are consequences for sin? There are consequences when you do bad things. There are consequences when you take wrong turns. There are consequences when you do things that are disobedient to the things of God. There are consequences. Now, here's where we are in the church of 2022. We want to ignore the consequences. In fact, we've taken some sin and just made it completely acceptable. While other people, we like to label them for the rest of their lives. They're that. They're that person. And we can, and, and, and even in doing that, right, with the wrong person, we're committing a sin of our own and gossiping. 
And so we like to label someone an adulterer. We like to label someone a murderer. We like to label someone and uh, we like to label someone with a with a sin that they've committed maybe 15, 20 years ago, maybe 15, 20 months ago, maybe 15, 20 minutes ago, but we like to label them, keep them in that. Why? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves. And then we've taken some sin, like gossip, like gluttony and others and just said, oh, that's, that's perfectly acceptable. That's perfectly acceptable. But Jeremiah 25 was all about the judgment on these Israelites for taking idols. And again, anything that separates you from God is an idol. So if you are obsessed with getting out of church on time, to be home and on your couch with your wings and your diet soda by one o'clock this afternoon, we should talk about this. You need DVR. Anyway, okay, we should talk about it. It's a big day, right? But we should talk about it, okay? And so Jeremiah 25 is all about the condition the condition and God's judgment on these Israelites. Because God banishes the people out of judgment because of their disobedience. He banishes the people out of judgment because of their disobedience. And so how scary is God's judgment? It's intense. It's intense. That's why I love standing and singing, how great, how great is your love, because you fast forward to the Gospels, and we see that Jesus came to satisfy the debt of our sin in God's eyes. But when we say that, we can't say that God is taking away all of the consequences of sin, because there are still consequences for actions that go against the ways of God. Having fun yet? Okay, but then the second passage, much more likable, is Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. And it was given to Jeremiah during the exile, and how wonderful it is that God just didn't leave them in despair. He just didn't banish them, boot them to Babylon without giving them a glimmer of hope. Okay, and so listen to this. He says, uh, uh, Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14, we, we get a very popular uh, passage out of here. For, he says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. Ever heard this um, misquoted uh, verse? All right. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And so it's the promise that God is sending them, yes, into exile. He's banishing them, but they're not going to stay there. Come on. That's not the end goal. That's not the end result for them. And so God promises that after 70 years, they will be returned to Judah. And they receive assurance, assurance, excuse me, that this is all according to God's plans and that they have a future and a hope. And then the last passage it comes not in Jeremiah, but Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. And, and keep in mind, this is 200 years before the people would go into exile. So it was prophesied that this would happen. 
that they would go and that they would acknowledge him and that he would strengthen them and all of those different things. And so isn't this amazing that 200 years before Cyrus's birth, the guy that we're talking about here in Ezra chapter 1, God spoke through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, saying that Cyrus would be the one to let the Jewish people return from captivity and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And so from all of this, the reason we bring all of this up, we see clearly that God has the power, come on now, to fulfill his promises. God has the power to fulfill his promises. So, I want to give you three points this morning. Is that okay? All right. Thank you for the person that emphatically said, yes, I am so ready. Three points, that means he's almost done. Okay, so God stirs Cyrus. I don't know, I've just been, I finished the sermon on Wednesday and I've just been ready to preach this. I, I, whew. Okay, three points. Number one, God will keep his word. God will keep his word. Now, if that already isn't fixed in your thinking, look back at verse one of Ezra chapter one. And the first year, of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now again, this was prophesied. This was spoken 200 years earlier. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Which means it was pretty important. He didn't just want to make the proclamation. He wanted people to be able to go back and read it, to be reminded of the promise to be reminded of the fulfillment, to be reminded of what was coming. That's huge. That's huge. And, 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 and again, place yourself in the seat of the Israelites. You have longed to hear this. You have longed for King Cyrus to receive this stirring, this message from the Lord. But hey, it's time. It's time. God will keep his word. Let every testimony in this passage that, 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 um, that, that the word of the mouth, excuse me, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, um, that he made the proclamation, that, that um, in verse two when he says, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and whoever's among the people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. God will keep his word. He will certainly, right, he will judge sin, but he will keep his word. He will save those who trust in Jesus. God will keep his word. Um, over the summer, uh, as I've been uh, going about speaking at Johnny and Friends, a ministry for families affected by disability, one of the things that Johnny and Friends does these days is, uh, is, they, is they give you the themes and the passages um, as a pastor that you're to preach on every day. And every year, it never fails, Jan, every year there's one of them that I struggle with. And this year was, 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 was unlike, you know, just, just like the rest of them. Um, Monday, or the first day, um, we preached on uh, Jericho walls falling down, Joshua 6, okay? And then the second day, we preached on Jesus calming the storm, all right? Awesome. Love that. Anytime we get to preach about Jesus, great. Okay. And then the third day came from uh, 
Genesis um, chapter 15 through 18, where uh, God had promised Sarah that they would have a child, and then God come and meets, comes and meets them. Abraham is 99 years of age at this point, and, and, and the Bible says that they were past the age of childbearing, which is a nice way of saying they're too old. But yet God had still promised to give them a child, and you can tell by Abraham and Sarah's response that they had thought God had just given up on them. I mean, again, Abraham's 99 years old, but then God comes and encounters them one day and says, hey, this time next year, well, let me back up. God comes and encounters them one day at, at the tent, at Abraham and Sarah's tent. Abraham tells Sarah to go and, 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 and prepare some food, some refreshments for the Lord as he's passing by. And so she's kind of behind the curtain, right? In the, in the, kind of in the kitchen, kind of preparing things, okay? That's not a man, woman thing. It's just what the Bible says, okay? I'm just not, I'm not anyway. All right, don't, don't attack, all right? Um, and, and, and so while God is speaking with Abraham, he says, hey, this time next year, I'm gonna come back and you're gonna have a baby. And Sarah from the kitchen laughs, which I think is awesome. And so then God is like, well, why is Sarah laughing? And Sarah comes out, I didn't laugh. She tries to deny it. Don't you ever do that with God, Right? No, I didn't do that. Like God didn't see or God doesn't know your heart. Anyway, right? No, I didn't laugh. And, and God's like, um, he asks a question. He says, no, but you did laugh. And he asks a question. He says, is anything impossible for me? Is anything impossible for God? Is anything impossible for God? And so I preached that message three times in three different places this past summer to three different groups of people. And, and as I did, every time I thought about what we're doing out here at 26 Cressy Road, is anything impossible for God? Because how I answered that question determines a lot about how I live my life. You may be in a marriage situation, you may have a situation with a kid, you, a child you, uh, that, that, that's just in distress. You, you may have a job situation. You may have a financial situation. You may have something going on in your life that you think is just so desperate that you don't see a way out. Let me ask you a question. Is anything impossible for God? See, I think one of the reasons that we're not seeing God move in the ways that we used to see him move as the church of Jesus Christ in America is because we don't truly believe or live like we believe that nothing's impossible for God. And yet we see all throughout the narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that it is one solid thread that nothing, everybody say nothing, is impossible for him. So let's live like it. Let's do things that don't make sense. Not stupidly. Right? But if he calls us to something, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go for it. Let's live as though we believe, as the church, as the body of Christ, but also, I'm challenging you as individual families. Let's live as though we believe that nothing's impossible for God. Let's just not let it be lip service. 
God can restore. God can redeem. God can heal. God can mend. God can forgive. God can love. God can do it. Do you believe it? Live like it. Live like it. God will keep His Word. But again, we've got to deal with the fact, and let me just say this, and we'll go to number two. We've got to deal with the fact, God, is anything too hard for God? No. God will keep His Word in His timing. In His timing. In His timing. Number two. Number two, y'all okay? Okay, half of you. All right, number two. God leaves nothing to chance. God leaves nothing to chance. Just as he stirred the spirit of Cyrus, I mean, again, that's why he gives the detail here. Right? Whoever is among all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, I love that he put that, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with gold and with silver, with goods and with beasts, besides uh, free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So he leaves nothing to chance. And he goes on, even in verse 5, to give more detail about what came and how they were going to do it. And, and chapter 2 is all about, now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity uh, of those exiles in Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, had carried the captive in Babylonia. Uh, they returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each to his own town, and they came, and the numbers of who came with them, all of it was there, and you skip down to verse 70 of chapter 2. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, they were there, awesome. They're going to sing while they build. Isn't that annoying? Don't you just love that person that comes, or even worse, while you're working, just whistles nonstop while you're trying to work. Don't you just want to bless them in a special way? Right? But the singers were there, the gatekeepers, the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns, they came with excitement and anticipation. They reported for duty, and God left nothing for chance. And so just as he stirred the spirit of Cyrus, he stirs the spirit of those to return. And look at the influence of the Lord stirring the hearts. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Look at the influence of the Lord stirring the hearts. Here's my question for you on this point. Are there family members of yours who are not interested in church? Are there family members of yours, maybe, maybe even it's you sitting in the room who really don't care about the building of the church? The temple of the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord to stir their hearts. You may not be able to do it. You may not be the one 
that is going to tell that person about Jesus or what God is doing or how he's moving in your midst, you may not be the one. In fact, if, if it is you, it's only God in you because I know that you're not that good. Because I'm not either. It's God who stirs the hearts of his people. And so as you think about those folks, ask God to stir their hearts. Ask God to stir their hearts because he can do this great work and he leaves nothing to chance. And then lastly, so God keeps his word. He's a God of promises. He leaves nothing to chance. And then lastly, it's obvious. We've talked about it a lot. God provides for his people. God provides for his people. God provides for his people. God promised to restore his people to their land, and it looked impossible. Again, 70 years of exile. It looks impossible because they can't possibly afford to go to Jerusalem and to build the temple. But God makes impossible things happen. God stirs the spirit of Cyrus, and Cyrus funds the rebuilding of the temple. It's impossible. But we've seen something similar lately, haven't we? Two times, and I'm not going to get into all the details. If you're new or recent with us and you want to hear the story, ask somebody around you if they know the story and let them, let them tell you what God has done. Two times that this building program should have been closed shut, and yet there's still steel going up out there, and there's still walls being put up out there. And September 22nd, there's going to be a slab poured out there, flooring, and all of those different things. Some of you were out at the land Wednesday night. Why haven't they poured the slab yet? They didn't teach me that in Bible college. I don't know. But they told me the day after that they were pouring the slab September 22nd. And so that's awesome. And so two times, more, probably more than that, if we really looked and counted, God should have closed the door on this building, but yet God has kept the door open through miracle after miracle after miracle to accomplish bringing Summit home. That's awesome. He provides for his people. So in your personal life, for your family, maybe even, maybe in, even ministry-wise, because I know we've got some people in ministry here this morning, are you looking at something that seems impossible? The possibility of getting married Funding a mission trip to Thailand. Overcoming some temptation or pattern of sin in your life. Dealing with a difficult situation at work or at home. Renewing intimacy in your marriage. Growing in wisdom to the point that you'll be useful for the Lord. What do you look at in life and say, that's impossible? And let me tell you something. Not in a, not in a prosperity gospel sort of way, but just in a truth way. That is where God wants to move in your life. What are you accomplishing right now that seems impossible? Look at these Israelites in exile. It was the impossible that the king would issue a decree that they could return to the land and promise to pay for the rebuilding of the temple. And if you had suggested those things before they happened, they would have sounded like castles in the clouds and possibilities. But God keeps his word. And so let me leave you with this question. 
What promises of our promise-keeping God do you need to put more of in your faith? What promises of our promise-keeping God do you need to put more of your faith in? Listen to these. Who does God say that you are? These are straight from Scripture. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are forgiven and your sins are washed away. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Number three, you are more, oh, this is awesome, you are more than conqueror through Christ. I love that. It's Romans 8, 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know the Greek word there, more than conquerors? I love to say this. I love to talk about this. You've probably heard me say this before. The, the Greek word there for more than conqueror is a hoopernikahoo. It's hoopernikahoo. And so as you're walking around the house and you're discouraged this week and you see, you, you see the person that you live with and they're discouraged, you look, at them, you look at them, you look at them, you speak life into your name. You speak life into their life. You speak and you just say, you're a hoopernikahoo. Because I promise you, they will look back at you either, either very surprisingly like you're crazy or smile. And both are good for the soul. Both are good for the soul. You're a hoopernikahoo. You're more than conqueror. More than conqueror. Number four. Come on, worship team. You're God's masterpiece. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Number five. You are the light of this world. Matthew 5.14. You're a light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Number, number six, I think. You are filled with the same spirit. Get this. You are filled with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus didn't go to the cross and redeem us so that we could live a status quo boring life. He did it so that we could have life and have it to the full. Church should not be boring. As people come together, living their life for the glory of God the Father and celebrating all that He's doing in our individual lives. Woo-hoo! Uh, number something. You're a joint heir with Jesus. Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs. You're a beloved son and daughter. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You are Christ's ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then lastly, we sang about it, you are greatly loved by God. Romans 1.7 to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My question for you is this. What one of those do you need to stamp on you this week? What one of these do you just need 
to repeat to yourself over and over and over again. You are a new creation. You are a more than conqueror. You are forgiven. You are the light of this world. You are God's masterpiece. You are filled with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You are a son or daughter of God. You are Christ's ambassador. You are greatly loved by God. Because here's the deal. Without Jesus... Without Jesus, we're in exile. There's no hope. We're lost. We're empty. We're in waiting. We're living with no purpose. And so without Jesus, we're like these Israelites for 70 years just living. And my prayer is that you recognize you're made for more than that. That God created you for a reason, for a purpose. Because He loved you. Because He wants to use you for His glory. And so church, let's rebuild Let's rebuild. Let's rebuild the broken pieces of what church has been. Maybe you're coming out of a church hurt situation. Let's rebuild the trust and the confidence in the body of Christ. Let's rebuild the mission of why God put us here. Not to be a Sunday morning gathering, but a family that's there for each other, that devotes itself to one another, to bringing resources together, to accomplishing big things for God. Not just building projects, but accomplishing big things for God. Let's rebuild the hope of Jesus into our lives. Let's allow Him to do the work of healing on our hearts and mending and bandaging of our wounds. Let's rebuild. You with me? The same God that came to Cyrus in Ezra 1 is the same God that we're about to sing to. And the promise in Scripture came years and years later, probably, oh, I, don't quote me on this, but probably about 700 years after this. Okay? I'm trying to do math off the top of my head. Maybe six or 700 years after Ezra, Jesus looked at a group of people his disciples, and said, greater things are you going to do as the church of Jesus than I have done. Greater things. Greater things. So God's not done with His church. Amen? God's not done with His church.
the best is yet to come. Will you stand with me? I want to pray for us in this moment. And uh, if, you, if you want to, if you want to, don't, don't, don't do it across the aisle. Just maybe the person you're right next to, just grab their hand. If you're with your significant other, or, you know, you're with somebody and just, if you know them, if you feel comfortable enough, just grab their hand because I just want to pray for you. I just want to pray for us as we close. That God would show himself to us the places where we need him most. So God, my prayer this morning is simple. We need you. And I pray that in this moment right here, as we sing this song of thanks and gratitude for what you've done and how you've moved, another song about your great love for us, God, my prayer is that you would remind us that we are not alone. And that you are enough. Would you remind us of our void and our need for you? Would you remind us that you're not done with us? Would you remind us that the best is yet to come? And God, my prayer for each and every person in this room, as we go about this week, is that we wouldn't just know the things that we've talked about this morning. For example, nothing's impossible with you. But that God, we would live our lives like it. That we would pursue our spouses like it. That we would love our children like it. That we would go to work tomorrow like it. That anything, as, as, as bad as the situation in front of us looks, nothing is impossible for you to redeem. Nothing is impossible for you to make better. Nothing is impossible for you to forgive. And so, God, I pray that we would receive that today and that we would live it. In Jesus' name we pray.